Welcome to this GemTrain.org presentation, where you will be able to enjoy some wonderful free content that we sincerely hope will help you overcome the challenges of autism. Some content from this presentation is not included here, but the entire presentation is available on our website, GemTrain.org. Hi, I'm Carmel Pearson. I go by Mel. I've been working with children with special needs for the last 20 years. I have master's degrees, well, actually two master's degrees in special education. The first one was to teach, so as a master's in special education with certification. And the second was in, um, with an emphasis on behavior analysis. I've been teaching in special ed classrooms for the last 20 years, fell in love the first time. Um, many of the kids had autism, but um, all of them had behavior issues, and I just love it. I got interested in ABA actually because I was working in these public school behavior units, and um, some of the behavior units actually use restraint and seclusion, and um, they said that it was the most ethical way to handle behavior, but I saw very quickly that um, behavior was getting worse. So if, if a procedure is working right, then the behavior should get better. But we were putting kids, restraining them and putting them into timeout and the behaviors were getting worse and they were going in more often. And I started to say, I don't think that this is the most ethical way and the most um, research-based way to handle behavior. And so I started looking outside of what I had been told and said, literally Googled, um, what I wanted to do, which was to help people with behaviors in the homes and behavior analysts come up, came up. So I went to look around and at the time, and this was about five years ago, the University of Utah was the only one that was providing, and it was their first year, a behavior an analysis um, course of study. So that's what I did. I went and I said, let's get, let's get started and find out what the latest research says about changing behavior. ABA is actually the science of behavior change. So there's a technical definition somewhere. You can go and look up what is ABA therapy, but I can tell you from years of experience and what I actually do is go in and help parents find out why children are behaving the way they are. If I go in and find out what is causing the behavior, then I can give the child the an easier way to get the same result. So screaming, tantruming on the floor may get you a candy bar, but if the if there's an easier way, if I can teach you to say candy and you would give it to me, that would be preferable, right? So whatever the behavior is, whatever the function is, and that's a real oversimplification, right? Um, we usually know when they're tantruming on the floor that they want the candy bar, but there may be something more to it. There may be sensory issues or or other things. So we go in and we find out what the antecedent is. The antecedent is what came before the behavior. And while that seems really easy, um, I often go in and what the parent thinks the antecedent is isn't necessarily. So sometimes it can be a really easy fix of just going in and finding out what is causing the behavior and what the result is and giving the child an easier way to get what they want. With the candy bar example, um, it, you may just think that they want the candy bar. But in all reality, I know as a single mom, um, I was going to the store after work. And so my kids had had a long day at school. They were tired, they were hungry, and we were all trying to force through an experience at the store. So while yes, they wanted the candy bar, they are tired and hungry and probably overstimulated. We would call that the antecedent. If we can handle 
um, or set it up so that hungry and tired um, are not there, we can, if not reduce the temper tantrum for the candy bar, we can at least maybe de-escalate it, make it less. Maybe it's not a candy bar that would solve it. If it's really just hunger, we can give them something else that they really like. So if you followed me on a typical day, um, I go into the home, let's say it's the first time that I've met a family. That's probably the really important thing so that you can anticipate what would happen. So you finally get a BCBA to come into the home, what's gonna happen? Um, I go in and I talk to the family. We get a real good idea of what the behavior looks like, the biggest behavior of concern, we'll say. And I often say, um, if, you, if I could give you a million dollars to make the behavior happen right now, could you make the behavior happen? Could you make a tantrum happen right now by doing something in particular? That would be the antecedent, right? That would be the trigger that can make the behavior happen. And that tells me a lot of information. But beyond just talking to you about it, then we, I look at the data. You might have IEPs, you might have doctor's notes, you might have other things. So I look at the physical paperwork that you might have, along with talking with you and informal assessment is what we call these. And, and then we also do an observation. So you would, never, you would never start treatment without actually watching the child behave. And I can learn a lot. One of the things that always happens is um, the child will not behave poorly in front of me the first time, which is okay. You, and the parents always worry that, oh no, she's not gonna see it, like taking your car to the car, um, the auto shop, and, and it doesn't break down right. But I don't need to see the child misbehave in order to see patterns that are affecting the child. So don't worry about that if that happens. Um, so a combination of what you say and what I read and what the, the child does, and I can actually create scenarios that tell me what I need to know, even if it doesn't cause huge tantrums. I don't want to cause those huge tantrums, but I can cause enough to understand what might from that. So um, I love doing those. That's a really easy way to go in and we start it. But then we're, what we're looking for is mostly skill deficits, right? What If there's a function to the behavior that is a skill deficit, that's where my background in special education comes in. So before the behavior analysis, I was a special education teacher and we did assessments and found what was um, a missing skill and taught them that. Um, if I find that the child is tantruming because they're missing a skill, then that's what you would do in behavior analysis. You go in and you find out what skill is missing that's causing them to choose this way to behave and get what they want versus an easier, um, more logical way. The easiest example of that would be communication, right? If a child doesn't know how to say, help me, then they're likely to scream and cry. And that's what you see from babies from a very young age. They don't know how to speak yet, so they're screaming and crying. So we teach kids how to speak, right? You didn't need a behavior analyst to do that. Um, we teach kids communication because they use crying to get what they want until we teach them better ways to do it. And that's what behavior analysis does. So, but as they get older, if they still aren't communicating in a way that gets their needs met, then there may be a skill deficit, whether it's just learning language, whether we bring in what's called a proloquo, um, which is a computerized, it, it's actually the program that's on the computer, but it's a computer um, assisted program for language. So if you have aphasia or um, just an inability to speak, then we can have computers do it for you. After we get a pretty good picture of the child and the um, and the paperwork and the and observing, then a good 
BCBA will do some formal assessments. And there's some tools that they use that are managed across people and time. And so a behavior analyst in Utah would use the same one that someone in Florida might use. And so those tools are used to get a very clear picture of how a skill or what skills are missing um, and where the child should be at a particular age maybe for that skill. So it gives us an idea of where their language is um, compared to other people or, or kids that age. Um, so we've got our informal, our formal, and then the next thing is your behavior analyst will go home and or to their office and start figuring out where the skill deficits are and start writing a treatment plan. That treatment plan will be ideas for um, what the functions of behavior. So we looked at the antecedents of behavior. I know what the behavior looks like and I know what the consequence of that behavior was. So we talked a little bit about that, but we've got the antecedent where maybe they're hungry and tired. The behavior is the tantrum and the consequence is that the mom gives them the candy bar. So that information tells me a lot about why the child is behaving the way they are because tantruming gets them the candy bar. Um, and that's a really simple thing that then I'm home in my office trying to figure out how can I help this behavior? How can I help this family solve this behavior and other behaviors? So we're going to identify what is the most significant behavior first that needs to be addressed. We can't address everything all at once. So there's kind of a rating scale for what we might choose first. Really, if there's something that's causing harm to the child um, or to the family, if they're um, biting, those kinds of things take priority and we need to address those first. So we, I take all of the deficits and I kind of rank them and figure out what do we need to address first. I also want to choose something that can be fixed as quickly as possible because I want you to see results as quickly as possible too because um, behavior change can be hard. Um, we could talk about extinction bursts, but so it can get hard and I want you to see results as fast as possible. So I would choose something that is quickly changeable that would make the biggest difference in your life and stop something that might be dangerous. So I make this treatment plan I bring it back to you and I say, these are the things that I think we need to address. This is the order that I think we need to address them. This is how I would like to address them. And then you have an opportunity to decide whether or not you want to address those things first in that way. And I think it's really important that parents understand the their part in this, that they are a team player in this, that they get to help decide what gets changed and when and how. And I just really want to empower parents to see that part of it because it's huge. And, and bad things can happen if you allow somebody else to have total control. And that's not an ABA thing. That's not um, anything specific. It is true of all of our things. As parents, we need to be very, very aware of what a treatment is, how it's going to be done, when it's going to be done, and be involved enough to know if it's, um, if it's not the best treatment for our child. I really want, um, at this point, to tell parents how adamantly I feel um, that you feel empowered, and I want it to be a red flag if you ever feel left out of a decision-making process, whether it's an IEP or with your behavior analyst, with a counselor, anything, if they've made you feel somehow that you don't have any power in this, that your opinion doesn't matter, that that should be a red flag and you should um, seek other information, um, call me, but, um, but or someone so that we can make sure that you get more than one-sided because it, you are the primary decision maker for your child and if you 
your gut tells you something wrong. I want people to start listening to their gut more often. You finally reached out, you've talked to a doctor, you've expressed your concerns, you've got a diagnosis of autism. On the diagnosis, there'll be a, a section where it gives you some resources of things to look into. And one of those things will be ABA resources um, or ABA therapy. And you'll, you'll probably get a prescription for ABA therapy or a recommendation for ABA therapy. When you do get a BCBA to come in, we do the informal assessments and then the formal assessments. And then we'll bring in that treatment plan for you to sign and agree to, this is what we're going to treat, this is when we're going to treat it, this is how we're going to treat it. And so once you get to that point, um, they will try and find an ABA provider. And what I mean by that is a, a registered behavior technician. So your BCBA doesn't come in for all of the sessions. They oversee and supervise the program. They are the brains behind it. And then we bring in a registered behavior technician who has been trained in behavior analysis and stuff, not in the decision-making part, but in the actual running of programs. So in those formal assessments where we found those missing skills, then a registered behavior technician will come in and run trials and repeated practice for this for each of the skills that's needed. And there's lots of different ways to do that, but typically research shows that ABA is best in the home and three, two to three hours a day and three to five days a week. So anywhere in there, you're looking at 10 to 15 hours a week of therapy. Typically these providers are college students who um, are working on the side, they need something flexible. So you typically get college students and we love our college students. Um, there's some problems with that. You know, they change their schedule, they come and they go, they graduate, so it can be hard. So I want you to really be aware that you may find a really great RBT and they'll do fabulous with your child. Um, and unfortunately, because of the, the scenario, the standard, the, what's going on in their life right now, you know, they may not all be, always be your therapist. So um, another thing I'd like to really encourage parents to do is be on top of that. If it's not a good fit, if the RBT that comes into your home isn't meshing with your child, for whatever reason, I encourage you to keep looking, you know, just be very verbal with your providers that you, um, you want someone that's a really good fit. If you're going to have someone in your home for 10 to 15, 20 hours a week, they should be really, really good friends and a really good fit, and don't be afraid to ask for that. So this um, RBT will come in, work two to three hours a day with your family, um, and then your behavior analyst should be in at least 10% of the hours, so twice a month for at least 10% of the hours. I would typically go into a home for two to three hours twice a month. Then if you aren't seeing your BCBA at least 10% of your hours, um, it's not okay and I want you to really reach out because it's important. While you can get really gifted RBTs who are um, intuitive and kind of get it and kind of know what to do, there's no substitute for the master's degree and education that's required from a BCBA to do that kind of thinking for you. Now, that's a little bit difficult because we are going to be asking them to do hard things and they may have behavior excesses, so there will be tantrums and I'm not gonna say if there's a tantrum that you have a bad RBT. By no means am I saying that. But really, your child should be looking forward to therapy because therapy should be fun. Um, it's a chance for them to get to earn things that they really, really like. Um, one of the things that I see that's unfortunate and I hope um, happens less 
if they have a favorite toy and it's being taken away from them so that they have to earn it back, I don't like that. that there's other ways. So, and, and a way around that is, and I see parents who really struggle with that, like they have their favorite toy and the first thing that happens in ABA is that they take it from them and it's not necessary. So when I set up my RBTs, I have a basket full of stuff that I brought that is my stuff. So I'm not taking anything away from them that is theirs. They keep it if they wanna hold their favorite stuffed animal or their favorite Superman hero, that is absolutely fine. But if they want something that I have and I try to make those really fun and engaging, then they do work for it and it makes it, the motivation is there to do something fun. So nobody should be having anything taken away from them in order to earn it back. And that's one of the things that I see too much of and, and disagree with. But yeah, I bring lots of fun things. The, the child always looks forward to seeing me. Um, and so when I hear stories about the child tantruming because the therapist is coming in, I worry about it for whatever reason. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that abuse is happening, but it means that the child doesn't feel secure and I wanna, I wanna address that, that function of the behavior. There's, if there's something wrong, if the child doesn't enjoy therapy, there's something wrong. There should be more reinforcement happening than negative. There should be more good things happening than, um, than tantrums. Um, now, with a grain of salt, right, because when they first start, there's going to be more tantrums than there will be later, but that should improve. And so if it's not, that should be another red flag. We hope you're enjoying this presentation. At any time, we invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum. The difference between a reward and a punishment, um, it can be confusing, um, especially when they start talking about um, positive punishment and negative punishment and positive um, reinforcement and negative reinforcement. And it's something that even confuses BCBAs as they're getting ready for their exam. So positive always means adding. It does not mean it does not mean good or bad, it means you are adding something. So if you're having a positive reinforcement, you're adding, and reinforcement is always something that they want, that, that is reinforcing and positive and happy to them. Just see how it can get confusing because I just used the word positive. So just remember that positive in the sense of the word positive reinforcement has to do with adding something. And reinforcement is always something that you want, okay? Punishment is always something that you don't want, and negative is taking it away. If they like M&Ms and you add an M&M, then that is positive reinforcement. If they don't like M&Ms and you take it away, then you've negatively reinforced them. So do you see how that a an M&M can be reinforcing for some people and not reinforcing for others? In that initial assessment, what we're looking for is um, their things that are motivating to them, really getting to know them on a personal level, what is reinforcing, what is not reinforcing, what, what do they like, what do they dislike. When I was teaching in the behavior unit, actually, it was really interesting, um, and it's a whole nother dynamic when you're starting to work with mental health, but um, praise was punishing for a lot of kids. And I don't even, never even went into the why. All I had to know was that a child would act up and the behavior would get worse if I praised them verbally. But what I found is that I could praise them by, uh, we had sticker charts on the desk and all I did was put my initials that said, you're doing a good job. That for some reason was, um, was reinforcing, where if I said in front of the rest of the class, Joey is doing a good job, 
he automatically started doing something wrong. So for whatever reason, we just found out that I could reinforce the behavior that I wanted without, ref without punishing them in a way that was punishing to them by saying it verbally. Um, it's interesting because when I go in, remember I said, um, I asked them if you could make the behavior happen, um, could you make it happen? And that's the antecedent. But another fun question to ask is, could you make the behavior stop at any time? And that's the consequence. What, what can make the behavior stop? And along those lines, I think parents usually have a bag full of reinforcers in, like they can come to me and I just say, I'd like to just go through your bag and see what's in it. Because most parents know what's reinforcing to their child. They know that the M&Ms will be helpful or that whatever it is, it's already in their bag. So that's helpful for me. But if they wanted to know what wasn't, I'd love for parents to start trying to figure out why don't you want something, really understanding the child. Not all children have the language for it, but if you could ask a child, um, why don't you want the M&M, and they could say, it makes my hands dirty, um, then, oh, okay. You might see that with Skittles. They make your hands more um, dirty than another candy. Um, the m and is supposed to have that shell on it that keeps it from making your hands dirty. So that's actually kind of one of the things that we do is figure out if they could just tell me why they don't like something, it would be easier to figure out what to do to help next. It's usually that we don't have communication, that we can't figure that out easily. But ideally, if you can start really getting to know your child and asking them those questions, tell me why you don't want that, tell me what it is. I love um, autistic children because they are so opinionated. And if we can respect that opinion and help them get what they want and still get what we want, um, that's the ideal. And that's what I'd like your BCBA to do and your RBT is to help figure out what it is your child wants, what it is you want, and try and get it in the in the best way for everybody. It should be a win-win-win for everybody. We do come from um, from that background. I, my dad was that way. Um, you should just do what I said because I said so. Um, if it works, do it. <laughs> I guess what I'm what I'm really wanting parents to do is be flexible. And if it doesn't work, then we do what's in the best interest of the child. And if they need reinforcement, then they need reinforcement. And we're going to be there to support them. And remember that key that just because I re reinforce them now doesn't mean I'm going to be reinforcing them for the rest of their life. When you learned to walk, your parents probably encouraged you. And, they, and, and potty training, there was probably M&Ms involved or some kind of sticker chart. Um, we, we do that with behavior and it helps, it gives them the motivation and the encouragement. It says what words can't, especially with kids who don't have maybe the language yet. So it says a lot to give them that reinforcement um, that may not be, um, and no, not just may not, will not be necessary when they're 40 years old. I don't still reinforce my 25 year old daughter for going to the bathroom. And so I want you to remember that as we start reinforcing kids, um, we give children what they need. Um, we give, every, I would like the world in, to give people what they need um, when they need it. So if a child needs um, an M&M for reinforcement and motivation at that time to do hard things, then let's give it to them. And if they don't, I don't want you giving out candy to everyone because they need it. I love the example when I was in school and we hear it a lot in special ed. Well, if I do it for one, I have to do it for everyone. And it's such a problem. Um, I want you to think about a child that, or a, an adult having a heart attack on the ground. Do we need to give CPR or Heimlich to everybody in the room because this person on the floor is dying? No, we need to give it to the person who needs it and only to the person who needs it. And I think if we stop seeing it as punishing everybody else and start seeing it in that light, we might be able to really help people. So 
being able to tell the other children, you don't need this right now, making sure that they are, their needs are met. If their needs are met, they're not gonna care that somebody else is getting their needs met. Um, the time that we see other kids balking is maybe they do need something too, and we need to worry about um, the functions of everybody's behavior. Why is that child acting out? Why is this child acting out? Maybe this one needs an M&M, &M. maybe this one needs a stress ball, maybe this one doesn't need anything, maybe this one needs parades, what it is. But being very individualistic or individualized about what people need and giving them what they need and not everything because everybody should get everything. So one of the problems that I had when I was working for another company um, was the parent training part. So technically, in a lot of insurances, um, parent training is not covered. So um, I couldn't stop what I was doing with the child and go over in a corner and talk to you about what I was doing. I couldn't go and teach you about the functions of behavior. So the workaround for parents that I want you to know about is that you can watch and be a part of everything I do and you can ask me questions the entire time and I would encourage you to do that. It can be tempting when you have a very um, difficult child struggling with behavior to go and get some laundry done or to go do some other things. Um, and, and so I, and I get that and I, and I don't have any judgment towards that, but really is it better to have three hours of therapy a day or 12 hours of therapy a day? And the difference is if you're doing it, you're implementing these behavior strategies 12 hours of the day, they're all their waking hours. If you're doing the same thing that I would be doing um, as far as um, reinforcing behaviors and being consistent with what we say and keeping those boundaries and those rules that we set. If you're doing that 12 hours a day, your child's going to succeed exponentially above someone who is goes and does laundry during that three hours and the child only gets three hours of therapy. And so during that time, if you can be where you can hear what's going on and where you um, can see what's going on, ask lots of questions, be very involved, because then the therapist and the, well, the BCBA can still bill that time. I just, I can't stop what I'm doing and go and say, hey, let's talk about how to continue what I'm doing. Um, and I, that was an overgeneralization. There are some insurance companies out there that do pay for it. So, um, to varying degrees. So I'm not gonna say no insurance does or whatever, but the best way, regardless of what in, which insurance you have, um, is to just be really a part of it and know why they're doing the things they're doing. Why are they, um, if the child's tantruming and the RBT is not giving them the candy bar, you wanna know why. And, and it doesn't have to be judgmental or anything, but it's good information and to be able to pick that um, expert's brain is just a gift that, that is sitting there that um, in the five years that I was in homes with families, very few took the opportunity to know. But, but you, can, you can just glean a lot specifically about your child if you ask the therapist why they're doing the things that they're doing. So lots of whys um, and how did you do, lots of whys and hows. How do you do that? How can I do that? What should I do in this case? Just, yeah, really use that resource because they're there and they, and they want to help. I go in and I say, I need to know what the rules are of the family. They're not usually written anywhere, um, but I encourage them to be. So let's go back to that. Um, and then, so I'll ask the parents, what's the rules? And they're like, there's this and this and this and this, and then come up with like five, 10 rules. But then I take the child in a separate place and say, so what are the rules at home? I don't know, maybe not supposed to jump on the couch. 
I don't know. And it's funny, it's interesting that the, that the kids don't have a clear understanding of what the rules are. So I would encourage you to have two to three very firm rules, even write them on poster board in the house, let the kids help decorate it, whatever, but have three very um, firm rules, but also the consequences. And it should be consequences both directions both the um, what is if they do that and also what is going to be the consequence if they don't do it. So let's say, let's say jumping on the couch. If that's one of the rules, there's no jumping on the couch. If the child is sitting quietly on the couch, then they will get praised. They, you'll say, hey, good job, thanks for sitting on the couch instead of jumping. And if they start jumping on the couch, then it's also written on the rules that they um, can't sit on the couch for five minutes, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter what it is as long as it's the same every time. What I find is that parents, when they get mad, they've kind of maybe ignored the behavior, the jumping on the couch for three days and they finally get fed up and now the consequence is grounded for life, whatever it is. So this kind of setting up rules and consequences, both for following the behavior and not following the behavior, makes it so that it's very consistent. So it's not based on how bad of a mood I'm in. It's just very natural. And a funny thing that happened in my own home, we did this and I didn't give the reward for sitting calmly on the couch. That wasn't the rule. But anyway, so I didn't give the reward that was written into the thing. And my daughter came to me and said, um, I actually need you to be a little bit more reinforcing about this. <laughs> I need you to be a little bit more positive. And I said, it was actually just the other day. Um, she had cleaned her room and I was having a hard day and it had been a long day. And so I, I said, I can, I can come in there. I might not be as reinforcing as I usually am. And she said, okay, well, understandable. <laughs> but, but because these rules were in there and, and the expectation to also praise was there as well as punish, um, it, was, it was very easy for us to communicate on it. And so have your rules, have the consequences both for following it and not following it because it's a lot easier to come up with a consequence in that moment than when you're finally fed up. And then what you've taught by waiting so long to do um, the consequences, you've, like we said before, made the behavior either um, longer in duration or intensity possibly. So just have your rules, have them set up and have each other call each other on it. If somebody breaks the rule, it's the same consequence for Johnny as it is for Joey. And if you didn't reinforce it, let them tell you, hey, I need you to reinforce me more. And so I see over and over, especially in the behavior units, um, these kids who would come in and they've been rejected because the teachers can't handle many more administration. The behavior unit's a last resort, right? So when they come to me, um, they already feel horrible about who they are. And one of the best treatments that I've ever given a child, and that should be in ABA and in anything that you do, is a love for these children, for how smart and valuable they are. Um, one of the, the hard sides of autism and also I think one of the gifts of autism is that they don't care what you think. <laughs> they really, that the societal um, rules and stuff that they, um, that they don't follow, I want you to see that as a gift because they really are um, doing what, what's best for them to become the very best that we can learn a lot from them in um, being passionate about something and sticking to something and um, and caring, and they really do. And if we can help kids, whether they have autism or mental illness or behavior disorder, which I saw a lot of, um, know that they are valuable, that they are smart and that they are passionate, help them find what they're good at and stick to it, we can change the world.
We hope you have enjoyed this presentation. We now invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum.